Hi, my name is James Doty. Uh, I'm a neurosurgeon at Stanford and also a neuroscientist, compassion researcher, best-selling author. And today we're going to talk about the science of compassion and how it'll affect your life and everyone around you. Welcome back to part four of this particular episode of Curiosity Bites with my special guest, Dr. James Dotty. He is a neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, Stanford. He's a compassion researcher, New York Times bestselling author, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and um, he's mates with a bloke called uh, the Dalai Lama. You might have heard of him. Um, this episode of this particular episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you. It's co-sponsored by the awesome Music Project, connecting music, science, and story to enhance mental health. To find out more, you can go to the Awesome Music Project and about AMP, the AMP Foundation, just by going to the theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, welcome back. As I said, I'm here with my guest, Into the Magic Shop author, Dr. James Doddy. And we were talking about all kinds of very cool stuff around research to do with Google and other companies and using um, compassion and the power of using compassion. And as you may have noticed over James's shoulder, if you're watching this on video, you'll see there's a photograph there of a bunch of folks, including the Dalai Lama, who James happens to know. And James is actually the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. So let's talk a little bit about you, your connection to the Dalai Lama, Buddhism, and the application to world leaders. So we are now going to do a, uh, a prison camp with Donald Trump, uh, Rodrigo from the Philippines, Bolsonaro from Brazil, the Hungarian leader, and a bunch of others, and we're just going to lock them in with you. <laughs> Good luck! Good luck, it's right. <laughs> so, talk to us about, first of all, how did you end up um, being the chairman of the Dalai, Dalai Lama Foundation? Actually, I should correct you, because uh, actually the Dalai Lama Foundation transitioned into more of a Tibetan-oriented organization. So okay. uh, it's now with them. But I was chairman for about, I think, six years. Um, I guess the first question is, how would you meet the Dalai Lama? And, yeah. and uh, what happened was uh, I had left Stanford, decided to come back. And in the process of that, I decided I wanted to uh, study compassion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting, when I first had these discussions with neuroscientists and psychologists, uh, I, I was met with derision, actually, because the uh, statement was, well, you know, again, as you pointed out, it's a soft science, uh, you can't really study this, there's no value to it, if you think you're going to create an academic career from this, waste of time. And this was 12 years ago. Uh, I didn't listen to them. Uh, and what happened actually was I funded the research myself. And of course, if you're funding something and uh, researchers need things to do, they're happy to do it. <laughs> uh, so we ended up having a little group called the uh, called Project Compassion, and we would get together and discuss these things and start these projects. And interestingly, two of the uh, scientists ended up changing their entire research direction 
toward compassion, actually. Wow. Because of the power of the work that we were doing and what they found in these studies. Um, one day, as and I have to tell you, I had no interest in religious leaders, the Dalai Lama at all. Uh, in fact, my wife was a big Dalai Lama fan. And in fact, I had dropped her off an event. She bought tickets for me and I refused to go. So, uh, what <laughs> so what happened is I was walking through Stanford campus one time and suddenly this image of the Dalai Lama popped into my head. And, uh, and it basically said to me, you need to invite him to speak at Stanford. Mm. And he had spoken in the past a number of years previously and uh, I tracked down the people who had invited him and uh, ended up connecting uh, with one of his people, got invited to a meeting, ended up at this meeting, the very first meeting he and I ever met. Uh, and it was supposed to be like for 15 minutes. We ended up talking for an hour and a half. Uh, his translator, a guy named Thupton Jinpa, who's a former monk, was there. And... Uh, at the end of our discussion, uh, Jinpa said, uh, began an animated conversation with His Holiness. And basically, at the end of it, Jinpa turned to me and said, you know, Jim, His Holiness is so moved by the work that you're doing, he wants to uh, um, make a donation. And right then, His Holiness gave me the largest donation he'd ever given to a non-Tibetan cause. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was quite extraordinary. And then from that, two individuals who, interestingly enough, were both Chinese, ended up giving me a million dollars apiece. And then suddenly we had the monies to start the center. And uh, that's actually how it all began. And then from that, His Holiness and I ended up developing this relationship. And, uh, you know, the next thing I know, I'm chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. Uh, I'm an atheist, uh, so it's an interesting thing. Everybody assumes I'm a Buddhist, since there's a Buddha on my uh, left shoulder there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's this picture of His Holiness. And actually, to the right of this is a, a Buddhist statement uh, about uh, uh, sort of the Om of the world and the power of that. But, uh, uh, but I'm not. <laughs> Uh, but the interesting thing is that when you speak to evolved spiritual leaders, it's never about the dogma. It's mm. always about what's above that. And that's kindness, compassion, love, connection, caring. And, uh, and that's where he and I always, uh, had our relationship. And he ended up coming to Stanford in 2010, 2013. He was supposed to actually be here last year or was it last year. Yeah. Uh, uh, or 2018 and uh, didn't make it because of illness. But, uh, you know, I've been with him all over the world, uh, India, uh, on the East Coast, uh, uh, gosh, in Zurich, all sorts of different places. And uh, we've spent a fair amount of time together. And again, it's always a joy because, uh, you know, when you're with somebody who is, if you will, that evolved, and you can see why people want to be around him is because earlier we were talking about the shadow, right? Mm -hmm. And how we're all concerned about being judged about that. And so many of us put this projection up of how we want people to see us, mm -hmm. which is based on our accomplishments, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing about him is he accepts you for who you are 
immediately, unconditionally, and you don't need any of that. So with your, when you're with him, you feel like you're completely connected, you feel elevated, you feel happy, you don't feel this necessity, necessity to you know, have this projection. And that's why so many people uh, love to be around him. And I've been blessed because I've gotten to spend time with a fair number of people, uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, the Pope, uh, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, uh, Eckhart Tolle, all sorts of different folks. And the thing is, when you're around an evolved spiritual leader, again, dogma is never the issue. No. It's always about these other things. And one of the reasons that I think that I have been embraced by these individuals, and as you can tell from my book, you know, they're essentially quotes from all those as well as neuroscientists and others, uh, is that um, they're interested actually in science and mm -hmm. this issue of compassion. And they want to, if you will, have an honest broker, not someone who has an agenda per se. Mm -hmm. And since I'm not part of them, and I'm connected to everyone, uh, I think I'm perceived in that way. And uh, it's just been such an amazing uh, joy to spend time with these folks. And uh, uh, I mean, it's really been an incredible blessing. Yeah, I, I find what you're saying there quite fascinating and interesting because, you know, as you know, I traveled and studied all these different religions and people ask me, am I religious? And it's absolutely no, definitely not religious, by any stroke of the imagination. Um, do I consider myself spiritual? Yes, but I don't know if that has anything to do with religion whatsoever. Um, because every one of the great teachers I had, and I had amazing Buddhist, Vedantic, um, I mean, rabbis, you know, uh, Catholic bishops, I mean, just insanely brilliant people, none of them ever pushed their dogma. I, my, one of my teachers was, my Kabbalah teacher was a Lubavitcher rabbi. Now, if you don't know what a Lubavitcher rabbi looks like, you know those Jewish guys you see in New York? <laughs> those are, exactly. I mean, they're, they're full on in the uniform. And I always remember a Lubavitch. I didn't have the, I didn't have the uniform, but I was hanging around there. Never once was that stuff pushed on me. And I, I'm the first to say, it's a cult. <laughs> I'm the first to say, but it was not pushed on me in any way, shape, or form. And all the great teachers I had never pushed the dogma. And there was, and, and I've said many times that there is, there are many spokes to the wheel, but the center is always in the same kinds of things. Love and compassion and curiosity and caring and, and looking at the world from a place of how we are the same, not different. And, you know, it's not, it, it, once it gets off into other stuff, I don't think it's got a damn thing to do with what the real teaching is about. And, and as a very good friend of mine said, some of his favorite Christian, he's a very devout Christian. And he said, so some of his devout Christian, uh, some of his best Christian friends are Buddhists, you know, so it's like, because it's living in a certain way of being. And one of one of my favorite stories. I'm going to tell a favorite story of the Buddha of, of uh, the Dalai Lama that I love. I'm sure you've got some great ones. Uh, is my brother um, was a pretty well-known DJ in the, in Britain, um, and he played a club called Money Pennies, which was the house club back in the 
late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and the Dalai Lama came to Birmingham where they were. And the guys who owned the club bought tickets to go see the Dalai Lama. And they, and they got Dajan. They got some time with him, right? And along with that, they took, you know, they took my brother, but he didn't get to be him, but he got to see. And so Money Pennies was the name of the nightclub, which was also in Ibiza. And Money Pennies was this silhouette of a black, uh, black silhouette of a, of a naked lady um, with Money Pennies on it, like the James Bond thing. And they took one and gave it to the Dalai Lama. And he put it on over his robe <laughs> you know, for a photograph with them. Right. For a photograph with them. And, and I, what I loved about that story was this absolute non-judgmental, compassionate, and playful. And one of the things that, you know, a lot of people who think of themselves as spiritual, you know, they really have a rut up their ass. Whereas whenever I've seen interactions with the Dalai Lama, there's this laughing boy, you know, the laughing child is there. And at the same time, he talks about his having a temper and he talks about being impatient. So he reveals the, the shadow, but he reveals the playful child, all of those kinds of things. And, and that's, that's why I would, you know, actually is why, one of the reasons I would actually like to meet him because it, it's not this, oh, I get to be in the space of a spiritual being, which he is, but I get to be in the space of this person who has sort of let go of any of the restrictions about what it's supposed to mean. I'm sure you think of some. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, it's interesting because he's also very attuned to, I don't know if, what you need in the sense that, mm. uh, you know, if you come to him and again, you're playful and nice and you're doing uh, what your friends did, he's right there with you. Uh, but, you know, if you're serious and you want to, let's say, learn something about Buddhism, he's very much there. And um, But isn't that the key to great leadership? He meets you where you are. Exactly, exactly. And the thing is, I've... Uh, uh, actually seen him cry. Uh, this was after an event uh, where a monk uh, uh, um, set himself on fire. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> and I've seen him really angry and pissed off at uh, an individual. <laughs> and it, it is sort of interesting to see, uh, you know, these different parts. But again, it, it also shows his humanity. And it shows you that also, you know, he's no different than any of us. And I think one of the challenges with many of these spiritual and religious leaders is that in some ways they feel like they're alone because there are all these people who want something from them, and uh, but they don't have anybody they feel equal to, to share with. And they also have a, a group of, of people who were there um, I'm not sure if servants is the right word, but these caretaker types, and you know, they're not going to confront them or say anything to them. So, you know, when I meet with these people, I'm just like I am with you, right? I, yep. I don't change in any way. And I think they respect that uh, for the same reasons that we do, because, you know, you're authentic, you're who you are, you're not putting on any uh, act or sort of trying to uh, uh, make them think you're uh, particularly special. And I think that's what leads to 
a true connection, if you will, with uh, uh, some of these people. Yeah, and again, you know, um, this is part of the the trap. Um, you know, you and I had had a conversation before when we talked about these illusions of what certain things are, you know, and uh, one of my favorite uh, Buddhist stories is, is um, it's actually a real story. You told me the Buddhist story and I said, I have a real version of that. And I said, I'd share it with you on this show. And I don't know if you remember that, but yeah. Um, so many years ago when I was studying Buddhism, um, my, my teacher was actually from the UK, but I was not, but I was out in Asia studying. And he had been a Buddhist monk for like 28 or 29 years, like a long time. Um, and so I, I'm at the temple and I'm studying with him. I'm spending time with him and I'm walking with him. I'm learning walking meditation. I'm learning all these amazing things. And I'm just in awe of this guy. I think I was 24 at the time. Uh, and he was amazing. And I held him in such esteem because I was an idiot. Uh, because I actually thought people were different than, than everybody else. And so uh, I would hang out with him. And one day we were sitting in the hall and we're all meditating. We're all, you know, that wonderful chanting sound. And there's a little ding on a bell every now and then. And it's just beautiful. I actually still love that sound. And every now and then somebody would get up and go over and light a candle. Right. And I was like, okay. So I didn't know what was going on, but I'm sitting there on my uncomfortable cushion, meditating and chanting and doing all the thing. And all of a sudden I feel my teacher get up, you know, cause he's going to go over and light a candle. So he gets up. And so, you know, one eye going to find out what he's doing, but I'm going to carry on. And I watch him and he goes over. Now this is a guy that's said born in Northern England, but been a, lived in the temple for a long time and he goes over there and and he does whatever he does i can't quite see what he does and then he leans over to light a candle and all of a sudden his sleeve caught on fire because he leaned across the other candles <laughs> and he goes fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> really loudly nobody bats an eyelid no other monk left the space in any way he did that Stopped, came back, continued to meditate. After we finished, we walked outside. We went for a walking meditation, he and I, and, and, and we're trying, supposed to be silent and focused on our breath and focused on the steps. And, all of a sudden, and finally, I couldn't bear it anymore. And I said, oh, my God, you know, I can't bear it. And he goes, what? And I said, can I ask you something? And he says, sure. And I said, I said, you know, I've, I've been awed by you like you seem unwavering nothing seems to bother you I, I said and then what happened in there that was like and he goes what do you mean I said well you know when your sleep caught on fire and he goes yeah and I said well I was just really surprised at your response and he goes why like genuinely it was like why and I said because I didn't think you'd have that reaction and he, and he said what reaction and I said well, you know that you got frustrated, you got upset, and you started to swear. And he goes, "I do swear." And I, and I said, "Oh, okay. I didn't think you would, but okay." And and then he said, um, "He said, here's the problem. 
I put my sleeve out 20 minutes ago. It's still on fire for you. He said, and this is the problem that you, now remember, he's from Northern England. He says, that you Westerners have about Buddhism. And I said, what's that? He says, you think it's about, you think detachment is about repression. Detachment is not about repression. Detachment is about being fully, completely, totally, absolutely present with whatever it is, including when your sleeve gets on fire, including when you're pissed off, including when you're joyous, and then when you're done with it, you move on. And I watched the Dalai Lama from then on and went, I could see what I hadn't seen before. I could see that he could be fully present with, as you said, the tears or being pissed off with somebody, but he wasn't carrying it around. And I think that us Westerners think that, we, you know, we've got this, I, I meet them all the time, they drive me crazy because they, they think that, oh, you know, I've, re, I've let that go. No, you haven't. I can see it's below the surface. Oh, you know, I'm detached from that. No, you're not. I'm de I've detached from my stuff with my mother and my father and my childhood. No, you haven't. You've repressed it. You are a bomb waiting to go off. And I see so much of that. Do you see that? Is, or is that my craziness? <laughs> no, no. Well, I, I think it's all of us, most of us. I mean, in the yeah. sense that, uh, you know, to get to that level of, uh, you know, to be able to let, sort of let it go and not let it bother you takes a long, long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still struggle with it. Uh, you know, I'm much, much, much better but it's, it's, you know, it's still an issue. And in some ways, um, this also relates to this concept of, uh, you know, stimulus and response, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you can have the stimulus and then you can uh, determine what your response is going to be. And then you just let it go. Uh, and that's the other side of this, if you will, is, is an event occurs and you can either lose it or you can push back a little bit and say, oh, well, this is not going to do me any good if I act a certain way and a more thoughtful way is to do X, Y, or Z. And what I mean by that is that, you know, <clears throat> we have a tendency to watch an event and usually how we respond to it uh, oftentimes relates to how much our sympathetic nervous system has been stimulated. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes that's not the best method of how to respond to something, especially not only for yourself, but for the other person. So if you, mm -hmm. you know, take the time and step back, you can give a much more thoughtful uh, response to how you do things. Of course, the corollary to that is what you're talking about, which is also the other aspect, which is uh, letting things go without carrying them with you. That's mm -hmm. another thing that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of time. Yeah, I, I know that I certainly wasn't very good at that. And I still, you know, like everybody, I could still use some work, but it, it, it is, it's interesting. Even my wife will say to me, no, bother you. I'm like, no, and she go, why I go? Cause it's not a damn thing I can do about it. And, and, and it's not about denial. It's just like, this is beyond anything that I have any control over. So let's just see the good in it. Let's find the good in it. Let's, but, but by the same means, if it pisses me off, you also know that. I don't hold that back. Sure. Well, I, and I think that's a, a, an interesting point, is this is the other problem, 
and actually his holiness has talked about this you know it's like you know if uh, we can't predict the future uh so if we can't control it why do you have a response to it right mm -hmm. and uh, uh but uh, you know people one of the things that gives people security is this belief that they have control over their existence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and it's, and if you feel that you're in control, then that can be calming to some people sure. versus, you know, if you feel like everything is completely out of control. But I think the, the more important thing is to understand, you know, the limits of that and how to respond to it and not get lost in it, which, uh, I think a lot of, uh, you know, people do, unfortunately. When you look at the global geopolitical environment that we're in, and you think about your book and the message of your book, if you could put that book in the hands of those names that we gave out, what would you want each one of them to get from it? Well, the, <coughs> the problem is that many of the people you're talking about probably would have no response whatsoever and never pick up the book. Mm -hmm. And, and because the reason is that the, the manner in which they have dealt with the issues in their life are not through the lens of thoughtfulness, compassion, or anything. It's how do I control this situation and take advantage of it? And, and, uh, and that therein lies the problem is they're not interested in looking at it from different perspectives. They're only interested, how does it affect me? What are my needs? What am I going to get from this? And uh, how do I sort of control the narrative here? And so while I would love to have them all read the book and be impacted from it, you know, the fact of the matter is that's probably uh, just highly unlikely. And even if you, you know, talk to some of these people, what you'll find is that they're, if they do read much, it's very, very limited, essentially to areas of, you know, basically uh, how you take advantage of situations, not, mm -hmm. you know, how do I make the world a better place? Right. When you, you know, from a point of view, again, of neuroscience, neuroplasticity, and all the research that you've done, including around compassion, when you look at um, these kinds of folks, do you believe that there, there is a possibility of coming back from what appears to be a psychopathy of a certain individual? Do you think that, I mean, you know, when I look at, um, I'm trying to remember his name now, who ran after Ian Smith, and Rhodesia, you had, uh, Des was it Desmond Sutu? No. No, Mandela. Or, or oh, no, Mandela was South Africa. No, it wasn't Mandela. Well, Tutu was down in South Africa, too. So who, who are you? Uh, um, um, no, it's, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, it was, so Ian Smith ran Rhodesia. Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe was run by, uh, what's his name? Uh, I can see him. I can't think of his name right now. But when he, so just as an example, when he started off, he was very much like uh, Mandela. He was a beautiful man doing amazing work and became a 
complete dictator. Right. You know, he became, uh, went into that craziness with the power. And so what I'm wondering from your point of view is obviously that can happen. And I think that that it means there was seed. My belief is there were seeds of that there that were not dealt with. And so maybe the, uh, the kindness, compassion, and that kind of leadership was actually somewhat of a front, maybe even a, a self, self-denial front. Um, but what I'm wondering is the other way. Do you think that somebody can come back from being this in that psychopathy of, sure. um, you know, being very damaged yeah. to, to, to finding this? Well, I mean, you look at de Klerk, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an example from South Africa. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and he partnered with Tutu and, uh, if you will, rehabilitated himself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at, though, um, who, the guy of, what was, gosh, Zimbabwe, and also uh, look at Idi Amin. He started out on some exactly. level working, doing good. He went to Sandhurst. He did all these good things. And then the next step is he loses it. And uh, I, I think what happens to a subset of people is they start out with this notion of good intention. And the problem is that they're surrounded by other people who directly confront them about what they're doing, how, what they should be, et cetera, et cetera. And then as they get more and more power, they're suddenly surrounded by yes people and these people go into this narrative of believing what they want to hear and no longer listen to anybody. And they make sure they're surrounded by these yes people who repeatedly in this echo chamber, you know, tell them what they uh, wish to hear. And I think that's part of the problem. I think coming back in the other direction is, is very, very difficult. And, uh, uh, but obviously, you know, there are cases uh, that that has happened, but I think they're few and far between. And because um, actually a recently released episode of Curiosity Bites, um, I think I told you was uh, with uh, Tony McAleer, who wrote The Cure for Hate, who had been a neo-Nazi, you know, and now teaches compassion. Yeah. Um, and so it you know, if one would have examined him at the height of his behavior, it would have been easy to determine that this was um, a narcissist, which is definitely was his behavior and psychopathic behavior, certainly. But was it who he is? No. And in fact, uh, evidently is very much not who he is. Um, And so I don't know whether it's my my false optimism that makes me want to believe that there are, there are a percentage of people. See, you know, again, you know, you brought up this person earlier, but when I look at someone like, um, like Donald Trump, um, I see somebody who is a wounded little boy who lacked the love of his father, who thought he was close to his mother, but his mother never protected him from a violent, emotionally violent abuser, um, and who lived in fear and who has a winner hero mentality, uh, which is never good for anybody that that person's involved with. And I watch what he's doing to his own children. And I see that behavior 
in them and they worry me actually a little bit more than him because they have certainly many more years ahead of them. Um, and I'm also fascinated by that people think that he quite literally is God's gift. Uh, so, but I don't see him being changed by anyone. I don't see him finding that compassion for any reason whatsoever, any more than his father did. You know, his father died as a hateful man. So, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing for me to be speaking with a neuroscientist about, um, about this idea that neuroplasticity and change and, and people who have been horrible, horrible, or lived horrible behavioral existences and have now transformed. It, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, uh, there, there's actually a neuroscientist who I, I was just looking up here uh, uh, named James Fallon, who's actually a, a, a sociopath and, uh, uh, you know, who talks about how he doesn't have the normal feelings uh, towards um, how you and I would feel if we did something that uh, would be considered reprehensible. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't even get that, but he's cognitively aware enough where he studies this and understands what he should be doing. And it's sort of fascinating. You know, there are studies that have shown that you can look at children as early as four or five years of age at their brain and see structural abnormalities uh, that will show that they're going to be a psychopath. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there, there is another subset of people who, uh, you know, have these abnormalities and they're predictive, you know, and they almost, kids usually are violent and angry and attack people. Uh, and then the question is, if this is who you are and you can't overcome it, then what are the mechanisms in which we punish people, right? Because if you can't help it, is it really your fault? Right. I mean, this brings, I mean, right now we just entered into an ethics question, which you and I could spend another two hours on that's completely, you know, because um, we know that uh, through social structure and social conditioning, that um, most um young males are more aggressive and but as they become a little bit older they become socially conditioned and they become uh kind of caring and oftentimes the ones who are the most aggressive actually become the most compassionate due to social conditioning you know um if they're not steered correctly let's just use those terms then do they have a tendency towards the psychopathic behavior absolutely they do um, and, and, and again, the, um, as my Buddhist teacher taught me, the murderer lives in me. I mean, that compassionate understanding of um, there's nothing out there that isn't a reflection of my reality. So, okay. But that, that Dexter-like mindset that you're talking about with James Fallon, is that what you said his name was? Fallon, yeah. Fallon, yeah. Um, that Dexter-like uh, mentality of, oh, I know what I am but I'm not going to do it. Although Dexter did something else <laughs> is, is, you know, the, that is, is a fascinating area all on its own that, that, 
that research about fixed in the biology and the neurology and the brain science. Because when I was a kid, I saw a documentary. I was a loony kid. I was fascinated with documentaries. I saw this documentary and I actually did a piece about it. And it was a documentary of people who were born with pieces of their brain missing. Yeah. Right. Like massive pieces of their brain missing and nobody knew for donkey's years until they were maybe, you know, 30 or 40 years old and they functioned perfectly well. So there were other parts of the brain that took over. Right. And so you go, well, okay, well, if the brain is showing that this person has, has pieces missing and they have a tendency towards being a psychopath, yeah, but does that mean they will be? Because now we're back to, well, could other parts of the brain take over? It's a fascinating area. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> but you know, you mentioned your neo-Nazi guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure what led him there, but uh, I would suspect that it was loneliness, uh, isolation, not being cared for, gets with a group of people who spout a narrative, but more importantly, take him in, and then he becomes them. And Community, then he, family is the primary driver. Yes, and yeah. then when he realizes the horribleness of this, he moves out of it. And this is the nature of, as an example, in uh, Afghanistan, you know, we, uh, you know, you sponsor these madrasa camps that take the poor Muslim kids and create a narrative that shows on the one hand, we love you, you can come here, we're going to teach you, we're going to feed you. But the real uh, part here is to turn them into killers, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, this is the problem with so many things is that, <clears throat> you know, people are malleable. And uh, um, if, you know, you can head towards compassion, or you can head towards hate, right. And I think uh, it's important that um, at least each of us tries our best to sort of direct people uh, towards uh, the compassion side, or, you know, I put in the context of love versus fear, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you can either go towards love and acceptance, or you can go towards, you know, fear and hate. Um, and I think that's unfortunately the way it is. It is. And this has been an amazing conversation. I want everybody to be able to find out about you and all of the wonderful resources you have. Um, if you would be willing to tell everybody, that would be awesome. Sure. Uh, so, <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me. So, uh, one of the places you can find my work at Stanford is CCARE, ccare.stanford.edu. That's the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, uh, .stanford.edu. You can find about my book on the website, intothemagicshop.com. You can find out about me at jamesrdodymd.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and jamesrdodymd. And that's probably you've had enough of me. Uh, the other thing you might enjoy, uh, I do these uh, podcasts or YouTube events uh, called Conversations on Compassion, where I sit down with a spiritual or religious leader and just talk to them for an hour, hour and a half. <clears throat> And uh, you can easily find them on YouTube if you go there and put in my name as well. Um, 
also, in fact, I was talking to Dov about this, is uh, I'm actually going to be starting a podcast and uh, here by the end of the year. So look for me out there and maybe I'll have Dove on my show and I'll uh, make him confess uh, to me all about his horrible uh, things that he's done on some level and, and, and delivering babies through his ass, maybe, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. You have to look at part one for that. That came from him. Uh, but anyway, uh, take care and uh, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, James. I hope you'll stay with us to the end. And we yes, we'll sign off to everybody else. I want to thank you for joining us. And again, if you have not subscribed to the show, please go over to Curiosity Bites and subscribe. You can find us on all the podcast platforms, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is, including iHeartRadio, all those places. Subscribe to the show. Please share the show with everybody. You know, we really believe that it's important for you to stay curious my friend stay curious and as always i want to leave you with this stay curious my friend stay curious about what might happen if you truly embraced compassion till next time this is dove baron you find out more about me at dovebaron.com and all the show notes will have all the information about james in there till next time 